It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I've been all over the place down in Key West, Florida. Met a lot of you down there. It was awesome. Also went out to Park City, Utah. Had a great time there. Was at the Governor uh, Ron DeSantis's uh, inaugural ball. Uh, was it two nights ago? I'm now back in the great state of Tennessee in Nashville and planning on being here for a while. So uh, I appreciate all of you here to hang out with me. And let's go ahead and dive right into a bunch of different stories. Right off the top, good news. DeMar Hamlin, uh, the uh, safety for the Buffalo Bills, sixth round pick, I believe, out of the University of Pittsburgh, 24 years old. Great news on him. We'll talk about those details coming up in a moment, but it appears that he is going to be okay. That's breaking news as of the last hour or so. Uh, But I want to start off with what I would say are pretty chilling uh, revelations that have come out of an affidavit surrounding the arrest warrant for uh, the individual who's been charged with quadruple murder of the University of Idaho students. As you guys well know, I have been following this case aggressively. Uh, ever since uh, this murder happened back in November, and we didn't know who was responsible for it. There has been an individual arrested. His name is Brian Koberger, uh, and he is a 28-year-old who was a teacher's assistant in Washington State, at Washington State, just up the road from the University of uh, Idaho uh, across the border in Washington Uh, and he has been charged with the quadruple murder. Some of these details are chilling. I'm reading from an article by Bobby Barak, one of our talented writers at OutKick, uh, that is up right now, and I just want to tell you some of the details. Um, The roommate, remember there were four people murdered in this house, three girls and one of the boyfriends, and then there were two girls who were left uh, unharmed on the lower floor, the first floor of this house. One of those roommates woke. She thought, and I'm reading from uh, OutKick, uh, which is from the affidavit that was filed in regards to this arrest. The roommate awoke by what she thought was the sound of one of her roommates playing with a dog on the third floor. A short time later, she heard what she thought was that roommate saying, there's someone here. She then opened the door, heard crying coming from one of the roommate's rooms, and a male voice saying, it's okay, I'm going to help you. She then opened her door again around 4.17 in the morning and, quote, saw a figure clad in black with a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. The male walked past her as she stood in what she described as a frozen shock phase. This is at 4.17 in the morning. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, Investigators found a leather knife sheath at the crime scene, which contained the suspect's DNA. The sheath was left behind. The cell phone, 
was tracked back to the house after the murders. The phone appeared near the home on November 13th between 9.12 and 9.21 a.m., six hours after the uh, the attack. Cell phone pings also show the phone was in the area of the murders at least 12 times before the morning of the killings. Uh, This guy who was arrested is facing four counts of first-degree murder. Uh, There also uh, is a report that he was pulled over in Indiana at the request of the FBI that was involved in this case by an Indiana state trooper because they wanted to see whether or not Koberger uh, had any injuries to uh, his hands as a result of potentially this murder. Uh, The other thing that's significant here is this individual evidently turned off his cell phone from 2.57 a.m. until around 5.30 a.m. and was driving this white Hyundai Elantra that authorities said they were looking for. But I would say the biggest revelation by far coming out of this case is that there was an eyewitness. One of the roommates that night heard noise that she woke her up and then came, in her recollection, face-to-face with this killer. Now, that's to me the the part of this story that is so chilling in nature. Um, and, And again... One of the things that you uh, that you learn when you are uh, in the legal proceeding, when you get your law license, when you're involved in any kind of cases, is there's the idea of the reasonable man or the reasonable woman. Everybody behaves differently. And oftentimes we say, okay, what would a reasonable man or reasonable woman in that situation have done? And what I can't get past based on this revelation If at 4.17 a.m., after hearing strange sounds that woke you up upstairs, a man you did not recognize came downstairs dressed all in black, also with a black mask on his face, and let me just say this, I don't think it's coincidental that crime has gone up as we have made masking commonplace, right? Because... In an ordinary context, if I were talking to you in 2019 and I said, hey, there was a strange guy walking around and he had a mask on, all of you would say, oh my God, you got to call the police immediately because why would you be wearing a mask otherwise? Unfortunately, the left wing in this country has so normalized mask wearing that it's not uncommon for people to be wearing a mask and behaving Otherwise, in a normal fashion. So I will say that factors in here as well. But if you saw a man you didn't know in your uh, uh, residence at 4.17 a.m. wearing all black with a black mask on too, and you say that you were startled and you froze, at a minimum, Maybe you don't call the police because this is a party house and for those of us who were in college might not have been uncommon for guys or girls in their 20s to be leaving or entering the house at 4 a.m. in a way that otherwise would be strange, right? 
So maybe you don't call the police because you're not that stunned that a guy you didn't know, given that there's a bunch of girls there, it's a party house. Maybe you're not that stunned. But at a minimum, wouldn't you walk upstairs once that person left? Maybe lock the door behind him and check on your roommates at that point in time? Just like stick your head in the door and make sure they're okay? Maybe she did that. But this part of the story doesn't ring true. It also is strange to me, on behalf of the killer, assuming he saw her, he had just killed four people, and now there is theoretically an eyewitness to his murders. Wouldn't you think, hey, maybe I should kill her too? Maybe he didn't see her? But this is strange revelations here. I also wonder, and again, I'm not an expert on police work, certainly. I'm surprised that the fact that there was an eyewitness didn't come out before now. Now, maybe they were afraid if they put out news that she was an eyewitness, that it would put her in peril. Maybe they really thought that he didn't know that he had been seen. And they didn't want him to know that they knew maybe what he looked like. But I would think this is evidence that would have been really important. Why did he go back the next morning? Maybe he was really interested in the crime scene and wanted to celebrate. Maybe he wanted to know whether or not the police had been called. Maybe he left something behind that he wanted to go pick up in his rush to leave the scene of the crime. I'm really intrigued by that choice on his behalf. And also, I can't stop thinking about the fact that this guy was involved in going to teach and everything that surrounds this story in general is pretty wild. So these are the latest revelations. I'm glad that we have caught someone. As you guys well know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about all of these details. Um, And so that is positive news, assuming that this guy is in fact guilty. And of course, as always, he deserves a presumption of innocence. Maybe he has a really good defense and it was not actually him. Uh, But that is all of the latest on the arrest coming out of the University of Delaware quadruple murders and the revelations inside of the affidavit surrounding the quadruple murder charges. They appear to have DNA evidence. They appear to have evidence uh, linking him to the site. They may have a uh, someone who is able to actually point towards uh, what he looks like. They may have an eyewitness to put him also on the scene, depending on what this uh, roommate is able to testify to going forward. He seems to fit the profile that she described, which is slim, but not overweight, uh, athletic-looking man in uh, with bushy eyebrows who was around six feet tall uh, that would basically fit this description of this individual. So all of that out there, uh, I wanted to give you the latest on the University of Idaho uh, situation. There obviously has been a massive amount of coverage surrounding 
the DeMar Hamlin story. So I want to pivot to that right now if I could. And I want to start off with a positive. Over $7.3 million has been raised for DeMar Hamlin's charity toy drive. And over 225,000 people have donated to the DeMar Hamlin charity toy drive. I am one of them. I shared the link if you want to scroll down a ways on my uh, on my feed the night of this uh, incident. And so I would encourage all of you to do some good. I love this because the response, I want to start with this. This is what American sports fans, to me, really represent. Everybody sees something awful happen on the field. And I was watching this game just like a lot of you were. I watched the Rose Bowl, and then I was excited to watch the Bills and the Bengals. They have raised, they were trying to raise $2,500, seven, over $7.3 million. This is how most people in America respond to tragedy, to misfortune. They extend their hand, and they try to help to the best of their ability. No different than if you were a kid back in the day like I was, raised in the Southern Baptist Church. Someone dies. What do people do? Take food to the house. It's a small thing. It's not like it erases the tragedy. It's not like it uh, helps to assuage the grief. It's just a small measure of saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. Here's something that I hope can help you and your family in a time of tragedy and difficulty. A lot of times, the focus is on what people say on social media. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I want to start with the extreme positive because this is what I see in the real world outside of your phone, right? Tragedy happens. People go and reach out and try to make something better. And I am incredibly encouraged that almost 226,000 donors have raised nearly $7.4 million. I donated. I hope that many of you watching this right now have donated. Just a small little thing you could do to try to help in a difficult situation. Okay, now, certainly there is negative fallout. Uh, And that negative fallout began with the question of why are you showing the uh, video of the collapse? I'll answer this question because I've had the same perspective for a long time. It's news, okay? Let's say there were 20 million people watching at the time that DeMar Hamlin collapsed. Many more people become aware of that news story and want to see for themselves what happened on television. In the same way that I shared the uh, Kevin Ware injury, it's awful, But I shared that on my social media feed. OutKick shared the video of the individual collapsing. And some people on social media were saying, why are you sharing this? Take this down. No, no. I believe that when something happens of this magnitude on television, barring it being extremely obscene or extremely graphic, which this was not, you should show the hit and the collapse so that people can understand exactly what happened. So that was my first call that, that we made at OutKick. I stand by it. I think we made the right decision, okay? On top of that, 
as if that were not enough. I also believe that it is significant um, that, uh, again, all of this money was raised. But also, what the internet is, is a blame factory. And I've written about this for a long time. And the more people who recognize it, the more sense it will make. Something bad happens. Doesn't matter what that is. And immediately, the internet rushes to assign blame. Now, the reality is, sometimes bad things just happen. I don't think anybody did anything wrong in the Buffalo Bills game against the Cincinnati Bengals. I do believe a lot of people did a lot of incredible things, including the medical staff. Credit to the medical staff that got out on that field and may well have saved DeMar Hamlin's life. Those are the guys that should be the story right now uh, because of the incredible work that they did on the fly under insanely difficult circumstances, okay? So to me, that is significant. As if that were not enough, the fact that immediately the conversation turned to oh my God, did you see what Skip Bayless tweeted? Was I thought ridiculous. Yes, I saw what Skip tweeted. And I know that everybody was furious with him and everybody was saying, oh my goodness, how in the world could he have done this? Look, uh, I didn't think what Skip said was beyond the pale. I didn't even think in the grand scheme of things that it was that controversial. It was just something other than what everybody else was saying phrased differently. And all Skip was asking was a question that a lot of people were thinking about. What happens now with the Bills and Bengals game, given how significant that game was, and I'll get to that in a minute, towards putting in place the overall number one seed. And so it's significant because this this storyline follows the typical standard, which is, oh, tragedy happens. Who can I blame for that tragedy? Right? Every single time. This is where we go. And we go there really rapidly. Bad thing happens. Somebody has to be to blame. Uh, and initially it was, oh, the NFL. How dare the NFL decide that they might try to play? I'll, look, I'm not an expert on NFL protocols in the event of serious injury. But I've watched enough NFL games, many of which have had injuries that are serious. And usually what happens <coughs> is the seriously injured player is either driven off on an ambulance or carted off. And the game continues. Now, this was different because I've never seen CPR actually uh, given, but I guarantee you what the NFL thought was, when this first happened, this guy's going to be okay. And we'll be able to say this guy's okay and the game will continue. Because that's been what happened in every single NFL game with an injury that I've ever seen prior to now. Now, this one was different, but most people have stopped blaming the NFL. That storyline has, for the most part, vanished. And then uh, people blamed OutKick, I heard because we shared the video of the incident. I've already said I wouldn't change anything. That's what we should do. Uh, And then the second part of that was Skip Bayless sent out a tweet and everybody decided Skip Bayless was the worst human being on the planet. Now, come on. This is uh, ridiculous in and of itself. I thought that Skip was way over attacked for something that was just a bit tone deaf in the way that he delivered it. If you haven't seen the tweet, you can go look it up yourself. Um, But this is what happens. Blame factory. Internet's one big blame factory. And then it progresses from a blame factory to someone who is to blame, even if they had nothing to do with it at all. And everybody, because they're emotional, decides that they're going to pile on whoever is the person who steps just a little bit outside of the bounds of acceptable discourse 
in the immediate aftermath of an emotional incident. And so Skip Bayless stepped right into it, and he was the awful guy, and it's been now multiple days where people have demanded that he get fired, cancellations, and everything else. And this is what I despise about the internet. The blame factory analysis, and then the immediate castigation of one or two people, the mob piles on. And I thought, honestly, this is kind of what happened with COVID, right? Everybody decides what the narrative is. And then if you question any aspect of the narrative at all, that is considered to be unacceptable and you are public enemy number one. And I've lived through this, right? As someone who said, hey, we shouldn't shut down schools, you should have seen my mentions. As someone who said, hey, this whole mask business makes no sense, go look at my mentions, all right? I tell you exactly what I think. I don't really care what anybody else's opinion is. The one thing I will tell you is I never look over my shoulder and think, oh, who's standing behind me? I just don't care. I tell you exactly what I think. You can agree or disagree. Hey, Clay Travis here. We'll be right back. But first, here's a word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So the pile on on Skip Bayless, I did not think was justified. And certainly, I don't think what was also readily apparent would happen is the pile on football, right? So now MSNBC, Washington Post, um, and, uh, and other left-wing outlets, The View, Joy Behar, have all decided that football is too dangerous to be played. And that's because ultimately, and I was on Fox News talking about this earlier, and I sent out some tweets saying it, left-wingers do not like football because it is too masculine, it is too violent, and there is too much of a meritocracy involved in football. It represents toxic masculinity in the wing of the left wing of the Democrat Party, and so they don't like the idea that football exists at all. They don't like men doing things with other men and excluding women, right? And they don't like hyper-masculine culture, and that is what football is. And so it was inevitable that the storyline would shift from DeMar Hamlin's injury to uh, the, the, the story that football is too dangerous. And oh, by the way, you can't even mention whether the heart-related condition might be in any way connected to the COVID shot. You cannot even mention that. Now, look, the overall method by which this occurred, I think is actually really significant because we need to deconstruct what happened to him to see if there's something that could happen again. Was it a totally fluke injury? Was it that situation where sometimes like a baseball can hit a kid in the chest at the exact wrong time and produce some form of, uh, of arrhythmia there? Was it a situation like Hank Gathers that they just missed where this athlete had an enlarged heart and there was some sort of heart defect and this tackle caused that acceleration? Was there in some way uh, a connection to 
any sort of medical issue that pre-existed? Was there any connection at all to the COVID shot? Did he even get the COVID shot? Myocarditis has been shown to be more likely in young athletes. Was that in any way involved in this? All of that's important. I don't think it's important in the immediate aftermath because the first question is, let's hope this guy gets well. But it's fascinating to me that all the people who say you aren't allowed to draw larger questions or ask any larger questions associated with this immediately leap on the left wing to let's ban sports like football while saying to you, hey, you can't overreact to this issue, shame on you. They both lecture you for asking larger questions while asking the largest possible question themselves, which is, should tackle football even be allowed? The answer is, of course it should. Look, football for most 20-somethings who are playing football, and if you're lucky enough to continue to play into your 30s, is by far the most lucrative way that any of these men could make a living. There are very few guys out there in the history of the world, maybe none, that at 22 years old could have made more money doing something other than playing professional football, right? Now, if there are 22-year-olds who are coming out and they got multi-million dollar offers to be involved in the real estate industry, and it's not because their dad happens to own a real estate company, but because they have actual talents there, or you can make it in private equity or hedge funds or whatever else it might be, more power to you. I bet there's not a single college player who has gone into the NFL that turned down a more lucrative job offer than the NFL. Why do you make so much money in the NFL? Because not very many people can do it, and because football is dangerous. That's the answer. Talent's rare, and the job is dangerous. If the talent is rare, and the job is dangerous, and the profession that you're entering produces billions of dollars in profit, everybody who does it's going to make a lot of money. So you should be able to make a calculated decision about whether or not to play football. A lot of parents out there have to make calculated decisions about whether or not their kids are involved in football. I made this decision. My sixth grader this year played tackle football, begged his mom and I to let him play tackle football. We had put him in flag football before then. This was the first year he was ever at a school that had tackle football. We let him play. He got through the season, didn't have any significant injuries. God bless it. We'll let him play seventh grade, eighth grade, on through high school if he wants to. Because I believe that the lessons that he will learn from football are more significant than the dangers that he will face from football. That's his mom and mine's decision. You are welcome to make a totally different decision with your own children. But I believe, and this is what I've been saying ever since I started doing sports a long time ago, the lessons of sports and being on a team are important. I'm about to leave and go to uh, basketball games uh, with with my kids. The lessons that you learn from sports are so important that they outweigh the risks that are involved in those sports. And my personal decision has been, I'll let my kids play tackle football starting in sixth grade. It's a precedent we've set. Now, other people want to disagree, that's fine. But the idea that you would take away my family's ability to make that choice 
for our own family is to me everything that's wrong in the left wing in this country. And I do believe that eventually the left wing is going to come after this this sport of football because they don't like cheerleaders, right? You're already seeing some attacks on cheerleaders. And you guys might think I'm crazy, but I believe somewhere down the line it will be unacceptable to like cheerleaders because they are good-looking and in great shape. I'm married to a former NFL cheerleader. She's still way better looking than me, and she's still in way better shape than me. One reason she's a former NFL cheerleader is because she's good-looking and in good shape. By and large, that is the aspirational goal of cheerleading and of dance teams. Before long, if it hasn't started already, there will be attacks on good-looking, healthy women who are athletic, and they will say we need fat cheerleaders. They will say we need cheerleaders in wheelchairs. They will say we need trans cheerleaders. All of that is coming because football is hyper-masculine, and the women who perform as cheerleaders and dance team members are good-looking. And people know what good-looking people actually look like. All right? Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. I've always said, men don't see race, they see hot. And cheerleaders tend to be hot. And that will be unacceptable soon. And the fact that football is hyper-masculine and almost no women have ever played is a problem for the left wing in this country. That's why any time there's a woman who does anything, remember the Vanderbilt kicker, could barely kick, oh, what a hero. Look how heroic this is. It's ridiculous. Okay? Football's too masculine. It's too much of a meritocracy. Pretty girls like football players. All of this must be destroyed on the inside by the woke. It's a meritocracy. The reason why the far left wing in this country and sports are incompatible is because the best man or the best woman woman wins in sports. That's the entire purpose of sports, is to divide us between winners and losers, between those with individual excellence and ability and those without. It's why almost none of us make it to pro sports, right? Everybody can play Little League. Most people can play middle school level sports. By high school, lots of boys and girls aren't good enough to make the team. It doesn't mean they don't like basketball or football or baseball or whatever the sport is. It just means that competition brings out the best. Most of our careers, my athletic career, ended in high school. That's true for almost everybody out there watching and listening to me right now. Some of you were so elite in high school, and I'm not talking about intramurals, by the way. Some of you were so elite in high school that you were then able to advance and play in college. It's a tiny minority. A tiny, tiny minority beyond that of you were good enough in that sport to advance to professional athletics. That is the meritocracy. That is something that the left wing doesn't like. They want everybody to be equal, and sports is about establishing inequality. The scoreboard does not stay even. The goal of sports is to be better than someone else. Capitalism is akin to sports because both of them are related to merit. The better you are at something, 
you beat someone else, and you have success. This is why so many people who compete in sports go on to be successful in other endeavors because many of the traits that lead you to be successful to the best of your ability in sports also translate to other career fields, teamwork, individual uh, excellence, uh, the ability uh, to put in practice, work, effort. All of that translates. It's why I always say, use the ball, don't let the ball use you. But football is a problem for the left wing in this country. It's too popular. Too many people of all different backgrounds like it. That's why they embraced Colin Kaepernick to such an extent. You ever see somebody walking around in a Colin Kaepernick jersey? It's almost 100% a sign that they aren't football fans. Do you ever see the people who would protest on behalf of Colin Kaepernick? They weren't football fans. They weren't sitting down watching the NFL Sunday ticket. They were fans of destroying football. Colin Kaepernick was a Trojan horse. I said it for a long time. The people who supported Colin Kaepernick most aggressively cared not one iota about football. It was about destroying football because it was too masculine, because it was too patriotic, because there were pretty girls on the sideline who uh, cheered for men, and that reinforced the patriarchy because of sports in general, which is based on the meritocracy. They don't like it. That's why I'll give a little bit of credit to Joe Biden. He got asked if the NFL was too dangerous, and he said no, essentially. It's the right answer. Democrats, though, on the left wing in this country, they are coming for football, They're coming for anything that men do that is masculine in nature because it makes them uncomfortable. The essence of the Democrat Party now is masculinity is bad. You know, we don't have toxic femininity. Nobody's like, oh, those toxic women out there, only toxic masculinity. What is that? Oh, it's football. It's violence. It's competition. It's male culture. It's unacceptable. Just keep it in mind that has already happened as a result of the DeMar Hamlin case. Uh, A couple of other stories, then I got to get out to a basketball game, like I said. Uh, I went to Ron DeSantis' inauguration. A lot of criticism of my tuxedo. I rented it. I don't own a tuxedo. My jackets don't fit perfectly. I'm not the guy that is going to be wearing the best-fitting apparel. I would wear, you know what I'm wearing right now? Outkick t-shirt. You know what I wear 90% of my time? T-shirts and either shorts when it's warm enough or these new uh, like uh, like sort of sweatpants. They're not sweatpants. They're like athletic pants. I don't know. You know, with the like tight rim around the ankle. I think I've worn these things for 26 consecutive days. Those pants right now, it's been cold. Except when I was down in, uh, in South Florida. It's cold out in Park City, by the way. I went to the Ron DeSantis uh, inaugural ball. Had a great time there. Buck was there. His fiance. A fantastic time. My wife was there. And I will just say this. My advice to all of you. If you worry very much about your clothes, your mind is in the wrong place. There are other things that you should be focused on. Just saying. Most men who are obsessed with their clothing, in my opinion, are not that successful in life. Just tossing it out there. You're worried about what you look like all the time, and you're a dude, you're probably, probably, probably not going to be successful in most of the rest of your life. Because if you were worried about things that really mattered, be more successful. So anyway, tux, rented. Knew I needed a tux. First time I've worn a tux in forever. 
didn't fit perfectly. But you know what? Shouldn't have been looking at me in the picture anyway. My wife looked spectacular. There's a reason every man's supposed to look basically the same. Black tux, black tie, whatever it is. Women. Women are all supposed to wear different dresses, different colors. They are the jewels here. Is that sexist? Maybe so. There's a reason why every man dresses the same, basically, because we don't matter. Uh, Bowl games. What a win for uh, Georgia. I was watching that final kick. A lot of people on the East Coast, I know, were caught up in uh, the whether to watch the ball drop or to watch the kick. They literally happened almost identically at the same time. Some of you out there say, if you're a true fan, you... Yeah, lots of people are casual fans. I've never understood this obsession with, if you're a true fan, okay, so you have way less of a life. Most people balance out a variety of different perspectives in their life. You got kids in the house, they may want to watch the ball drop. You got a wife, may want to watch the ball drop. You got friends over for New Year's Eve. This is why I've always said, New Year's Eve's an awful day. Awful day to have the college football playoff because there's a lot of people out there with obligations on New Year's Eve. Now, I'm getting old. I would rather just stay at home and and watch football. That's what I've done like the last several years. Sit on my couch, watch uh, Fox News. I was watching Will Kane and Pete Hegseth and, uh, and and their crew from downtown Nashville, the Wild Horse Cafe. Last uh, couple of years, I've watched that. But if you're trying to go out, and I've been in that group, when you're in your 20s, when you're in your late teens, when you're in your early 30s, if you're still single, you're trying to go out, and you're trying to watch college football games simultaneously, it can be messy. So I knew that was going to be messy, but several things that jumped out to me about that uh, performance. One, the Kirby Smart timeout. Maybe the greatest timeout in the history of college football. If he doesn't call that timeout, first down happens, right? Uh, And Georgia is having to deal with an 11-point deficit with around eight or nine minutes to go. Have to start thinking about your timeouts. Marvin Harrison Jr. injury. Marvin Harrison Jr. doesn't get injured. I think Ohio State wins that game. Incredible play by C.J. Stroud uh, all throughout the game. But Stetson Bennett in the last 10 minutes demonstrated why he is one of the best players uh, in the history of the SEC, I think you have to say, uh, in crunch time. Also, Ohio State, I was at the Ohio State-Michigan game, got whipped. But man, even though they lost, that to me was a much better feeling for the end of the year than the way that they lost at home. The other thing I will say about this, Uh, When you look at that 50-yard field goal, which got yanked wide left, to me, the three most significant plays in the game after C.J. Stroud scrambled for that big first down was what happened. They tried to run the ball on first down, got caught, lost a yard. Second and third down, dangerous. Everybody's criticizing Ryan Day's play calling. I didn't think that was valid because on second and third down, if your quarterback gets tackled, you're basically back to having to attempt a Hail Mary. 50-yard field goal is a long attempt, But I bet if you gave that exact kick to that kicker, I bet he would make six out of 10 of those. A 60% chance to go to the national championship game in that scenario after you just gave up the touchdown is not necessarily a bad result. Uh, So as you break all of that down, uh, congratulations, Georgia Bulldogs. SEC now, 10-1 and in semifinal games. The only semifinal game the SEC has lost ever was the first one, 2014, when Alabama lost to Ohio State and Urban Meyer, okay? Big 10 now 2-6. and six. The Big 10, and I'll get to the Michigan game in a moment, the Big 10 lost more games on uh, New Year's Eve 
than the SEC has lost since the playoff began. Uh, And on top of that, Michigan. Give credit to TCU, but when you throw two touchdown passes, uh, it gets picked off, two interceptions, give up 51 points, I think Michigan has to be disappointed very much. But it's all about perspective. If you had told Michigan fans five minutes before kickoff against Ohio State, you are going to blow out Ohio State today, but you will lose in the college football playoff. As long as they weren't playing Ohio State, every Michigan fan would have signed up for that result. So I think it's hard to call the Michigan season disappointing. It's only disappointing if you look at the season in the context of the final game. If you had told Michigan fans you're going to go 13-1, and win the Big Ten, and lose in the first round of the playoff again, even though it's a sixth straight bowl loss for Jim Harbaugh, all of them would have signed up for it. By the way, sounds like Harbaugh wants to go to the NFL now. And at least this way, on his exit, he's coming off two straight wins over Ohio State and back-to-back Big Ten titles, which has validated his decision, I think, to go back to Michigan in a big way. Um, Finally, uh, the House Speaker vote. So, by the way, I'll I'll talk more about Georgia versus TCU uh, as we get ready for the Monday edition of the show. In fact, I'll talk about it in a big way on Monday. I'm back on OutKick the show, by the way, as you guys well know. I've been away a couple weeks. Um, House Speaker, we now are on the ninth round of the vote. And I understand everybody's like, oh, I've got such strong opinions. I'm going to be honest with you. I know a lot of the people in the 20 who are not supporting so far uh, Kevin McCarthy for this speakership. Uh, And obviously, I know a lot of people in the 200 group that are. I'm not really that concerned about who's going to be speaker. And I understand everybody's out there like, oh, this is a horrible thing. Somebody's going to end up the speaker. And whoever the speaker is, is not going to be able to do very much. The job of the House Republicans now is to be a roadblock to try and keep Joe Biden from making things worse, spending more money, uh, raising taxes. And when you don't have the Senate and you don't have the White House, then basically all you can do is be an obstructionist. And so I don't believe that it's going to make that much of a difference, frankly, whether it is Kevin McCarthy, whether it's uh, Jim Jordan, who's a friend of mine, whether it's Steve Scalise, uh, whether it's Elise Stefanik, whoever it is, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, Donald Trump, I don't think it matters, Byron Donalds, who is actually the House Speaker, because I think as soon as there is uh, uh, a House Speaker, House Speaker's not going to have much power. You can't do very much when you don't control the Senate and when you don't control the presidency. I will point this out. I do find it funny Democrats are like, look how disorganized Republicans are. Yet these are the same Democrats that have spent years arguing that the Republican Party has to distance itself from Donald Trump. Donald Trump is saying, hey, Kevin McCarthy is my guy, and that doesn't resolve the issue. So there's actually a lot of independents now in the Republican Party, and they're not all in lockstep union at all. And this is what democracy sometimes looks like. It's messy. It takes a while for someone to end up able to have the power here. And so as you break all of this down, uh, I'm not worried about who is going to end up the House Speaker. I don't think it's a very significant issue in the grand scheme of things. I'm fine with any way that it resolves. I'm far more concerned with keeping Joe Biden from making the country worse than I am with who the Speaker of the House is. All right. 
I got a basketball game to get to. Talked a lot today. Obviously, there are many different things that are going on. I appreciate you uh, for being here as a fan of OutKick. We had an incredible 2022. You guys are phenomenal. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP. I am Clay Travis, and this has been OutKick, the show.